Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky, and this program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. America's 360 is a collaboration among the Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, March is Women's History Month here in the United States. In recent years, the U.S. has reached some major milestones in terms of women in leadership, perhaps most notably with the election of Kamala Harris as the nation's first female vice president. Across the Americas, women have broken new grounds in political leadership as well as in business. Elections following new gender parity laws have marked successful upticks in female participation in Congresses and parliaments. And the pandemic has opened new digital avenues for women to pursue entrepreneurial ventures. Well, despite these notable gains from Chile to Canada, problems such as gender-based violence and the gender wage gap do persist. So, are proportional representation laws for elections enough? What type of executive roles do women in the Americas have access to? And can countries' efforts to bridge the gendered leadership gap create real public policy and cultural change? Here to discuss these questions and more is our America's 360 Roundtable. Please say hello to Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Brazil Institute Fellow Daniela Campello. Hi, John. Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. John. And Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour. Welcome back to all of you. Great to see you, or at least hear you, in terms of our podcast. So, uh, let me begin. Let's, Andrew, let's begin with you because we see some numbers from Mexico that uh, the Chamber of Deputies is now over 48% women. So is that representative of what's happening throughout the country and, and how do they get there? A, a great question, John. Uh, you're right about the, the figures in the, the lower house, the Chamber of Deputies. The Senate is actually split precisely 50 50. Um, Mexico has laws that uh, govern. Uh, minimum numbers of female candidates, or, or I think somewhat interestingly, there's a limit of uh, at least 40% of the candidates have to or have to be from one one gender. So in other words, you're sort of in a band between 40 and 60% male or female. I think that's certainly important. And there are a number of uh, women, not that many, but there are women in pretty senior positions in Mexico. Uh, there hasn't been a female president yet, but um, the current president of the Mexican Senate, Olga Sanchez Cordero, has had a really interesting career in addition to being now the president of the Senate. She's a former Secretary of Interior, which is generally seen to be the most important cabinet position. And she's also a former Supreme Court Justice. So she's actually been part of, at the senior levels of all three branches of the Mexican government, uh, the current mayor of Mexico City, Claudia Scheinbaum, um, is often seen as the second most powerful politician, that is the mayor of Mexico City because of the size of the country. Um, and a lot of people think that she is Amla's pick to succeed him. So there could indeed be a female president at some point in, in Mexico. But as I know we'll talk about this more, I, I think the really important thing, as you mentioned in your intro, is 
is is having gender parity sort of based and you have to run the number of candidates, is that really enough? Uh, and I, I think that to some extent depends on is it, you know, are, are they token candidates? And there are certainly examples of women being put up in races where the party does not expect to win. And I think the real question is, when are they running winning women candidates in races they expect to win? That that certainly is the central question, right? You can change the numbers, but are you changing the policy outcomes that really move the needle for for people, real people, not just uh, elected people? Uh, Chris Sands, let's we'll turn to you. We're going to head north, and and uh, Canada often positions itself, or maybe earns the designation as a progressive country, and as it re- relates to these types of endeavors, uh, is is Canada holding its own in this regard? Um, well, it's an interesting, interesting question. The the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau um, has made a commitment to gender parity, and so his cabinets, since he was first elected in 2015 through today, that's three different ministries. Uh, he's always made sure there's gender parity uh, around the cabinet table, and in particular, um, one of the standouts is Christian Freeland. Now, Deputy Prime Minister, she has served as Foreign Minister, was Canada's lead negotiator. Uh, for the USMCA, um, a very prominent role. And she also currently is serving as Canada's finance minister. So that's a pretty impressive, uh, prominent role for women in Trudeau's cabinet. What's interesting, however, is that federally, the Liberals are the only party that have not had a female leader. Um, you see the Conservatives, the um, who, of course, gave us uh, as Prime Minister Kim Campbell uh, in the in the 90s, uh, but they also have have had women uh, leaders like Rona Ambrose, Lisa Raitt, uh, who've led the party very well. Uh, the NDPs had several women uh, leaders over the years. Even the Bloc Québécois uh, has had uh, female leaders. I should say that uh, the Green Party's longtime leader, Elizabeth May, uh, you know, fits for the Greens. But the People's Party of Canada, which was founded by Maxime Bernier, is still led by Maxime Bernier. So in fairness, he and uh, Trudeau are the, the two party. They, they represent the two parties without female leaders. The difference being that Trudeau is really trying to redress that balance. Um, and it's more than cabinet. Uh, in 2020, because they have an appointed Senate in Canada, we saw the Senate actually reach gender parity. Uh, that's an achievement that was built on prime ministers over the years, making sure they appointed women. It took them a long time to get there. And about uh, 30% of the Parliament House of Commons is uh, is female. That's far below the number where they should be and goes to something that Andrew raised, which is, are they finding enough women candidates um, and are they running them in ridings where they have a decent chance? Clearly, some of them are doing well, but there's more to be done uh, on that front. But Canada generally, I think, has done, has done fairly well. I want to add one other thing, which is um, there's a big role for provincial premiers. And Ontario, Quebec, other provinces have done well to have female premiers. And that's another area very close to a lot of issues where Canada has done particularly well. Um, But uh, yeah, Canada is, I think, generally lived up to its reputation of being pretty good on women's issues. Yeah, Chris. Chris, and when you when you mention, are you finding enough female characters? I guess the other side of that coin is, are there barriers preventing female characters uh, 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 candidates from emerging? Uh, Cindy, when you when you look across the the region, uh, what what do you see? What as far as the trend lines? Do you do you see uh, progress? And where are the hot spots? Where are things really moving forward? 
Thanks, John. I'd like to start out by talking a little bit about Chile. They just recently had a presidential election, and and quite notably, more than half of the cabinet of uh, President-elect Gabriel Boric, um, more than half are women. And women occupy not just any old uh, cabinet post, but some of the the most um, important, the Minister of Justice, Ministry of Interior, um, Ministry of Defense are all now headed by women. And Chile, even before Boric, had long been a pioneer. Michelle Bachelet, before she was elected president and then elected president, um, served as the country's first female defense minister. Um, so there's, I think, a long tradition uh, in Chile of, uh, of women's inclusion, and Gabriel Boric was able to um, capitalize on that. At the same time, there are real problems throughout the region, not just in Chile, but really all over Latin America. As a result of COVID, um, Latin America and probably every other country in the world, women have left the workforce in droves, um, have been have had to go back to household tasks, caring for children um, um, who are out of school. Um, the rise in informality among women um, is still very high. And we can talk later in the program about other countries, but I think um, Chile really stands out uh, for the feminist initial actions uh, of the Boric government, but also for the, the role that um, very senior women have played in uh, in the last twenty years. Thanks, Cindy. And you anticipated a, a question I was was going to ask about that white noise in the background of all of our discussions, the pandemic, or maybe sometimes flaring up to tinnitus and not white noise, but it certainly has had an impact on just about everything. Benjamin. Uh, give us the view from where you're sitting. A notable election in Argentina, right? And but then overall, what's the picture look like? Yeah, I, I think Argentina has, like Chile, and, and maybe even more so, been a, a trailblazer when it comes to these issues. You know, we've talked a lot already about these quotas to ensure good gender uh, balance in legislatures. Argentina's been at that for quite a while, increasing it over time. Um, you know, one can look at the quality of legislating and see whether, in fact, issues important to women are rising to the top because of the increase in women's representation. There's a lot of good research um, that comes to different conclusions on that. But certainly, the, the quantitatively, Argentina has done quite a good job in that regard. The last governor of the province of Buenos Aires, the biggest province of the country, was a woman for the first time. She remains one of the top opposition figures. Argentina, of course, had a, a female leader um, who's now the vice president. She was twice elected. President, so I think the country has, you know, gone far in terms of increasing at least the numbers of women in really critical positions in government. Thanks, Daniela. We, we've been focusing on elected officials, right? But when we talk about leadership, we could also look to the private sector. I know you've done some research on both the, the political side and the business side in, in Brazil. Uh, what are you seeing, and is there imbalance between the two? Oh, yes, absolutely. And actually, Brazil is at the other end of the spectrum, uh, where Mexico and Canada on one side and Brazil in the other. Uh, only 13% of Brazilian companies have female CEOs. Only 26% have directors, female directors. Uh, in, when it comes to boards, only 14% of the companies in Brazil have uh, women on boards. It has increased a, a little bit from the last years, but compared to the average of the world of 27% is like half of it. Uh, right. Uh, and it's interesting in the private sector, it's interesting to, to note that women have a very specific profile when they are in leadership. They are Brazilian. They are white, 97 percent. 
between 51 and 60 years old, mother, cisgender, heterosexual, in addition to being concentrated in Sao Paulo, 74% of the women who are uh, participating boards are in Sao Paulo. But that, that, I think that the, the most interesting aspect of uh, the, this um, imbalance in Brazil is in the political uh, side. Brazil actually has right now only 15% of women in parliament compared to what 48 in Mexico, as we mentioned before. Brazil ranks 133 in 192 countries in the world behind the whole Latin America, only uh, equivalent to Paraguay, which had women voting only in 68, like 35 yeah, years, about 35 years after Brazil. So it's a, it's a, it's a serious stuff. What happens in Brazil is that recently, a, a, a few years ago, we start established a quota of 30% of candidates should be women. But what happens that uh, because we are open system uh, with open lists, uh, parties include women, but they put the money uh, in the male candidates. So that has been the reality. So what happened in 2018, there was a, a Supreme uh, Court law that forced 30% of the funds to go to women. And then what the parties do is that in the, that happened in the, the most recent municipal election is that they concentrate all these funds in the vice candidate for mayor, which means they concentrate the funds on the campaign for the mayor uh, at the expense of the legislature. So this has been an issue uh, in Brazil. But now the, the whole discussion is how to close this loophole and try to spread more evenly uh, the funds among women, because I think that that's at the heart of the, the problem in the political system. I think that's one, one additional point, which is, I, I think it's uh, sad when we look to Brazil. We had a first female president in 2011, Dilma Rousseff, even though she was not elected, uh, she was uh, elected by had to do with the power of Lula, uh, uh, choosing her as a candidate. She had never been elected before, but this is a major thing. And with her came the law of feminicide and other initiatives. But after that, we had two two, two presidents that had no, uh, one had zero uh, female uh, participants in their his cabinet, which was Michel Temer. And Bolsonaro has two one powerful uh, uh, candidate, uh, minister of agriculture, but the other is a picturesque um, minister of family and women and that defends that women should be treated as princesses in Brazil. So that's the move, the increase that we saw in the legislature, in the last legislature of women were mostly women on the far right that are against women's rights. So that's a paradox of the Brazilian participation now. Cindy, go ahead. I think you have a question for Danny. Yeah, I have a question for you, Danny. How would you um, judge the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff? There were lots of people who commented at the time that she was being impeached in part because she was a woman, that she was easier to go after, that men um, are uh, were not treated in the same way, even when they had a terrible um, record of, of leadership. It's almost impossible to prove the negative, but I'm, I'm really uh, curious as to your perception. Yeah, I think that the, I, will, I would say that there, it's hard. Like one case, we cannot say whether it had to do with a woman or not. The way she behaved was most often described as like male, which is something that creates reactions too. She was very assertive uh, and very direct in her communication. And, and that hurt many of the men who were working uh, beside her. But just to give you a, 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 a comparison with Dilma, when people talk about her and talk bad things about her, they use the terms that are typical of like bad things about female life. She's crazy. She is um, uncontrolled. This kind of uh, term that they use, for example, for female journalists. So the other recently we had a study that showed how uh, in Twitter, 
people would refer to female journalists and male journalists, and the terms are very sexist when, when it comes to the female journalists. So I think in that sense, we can identify something in the process of Dilma that had to do with the fact that she uh, was a woman, no doubt about that. In that regard, you know, we've talked a lot so far about certain technical things that have been done, you know, allocation of funds and targeted percentages and things of that nature. But when this this exchange between Danny and, and Cindy brings up the cultural aspects, right, in sexism in this regard, and that I remember seeing a study of the campaign between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and terms to describe the candidates. And there was a gender breakdown, right? There was a term like conniving that people applied to Hillary Clinton, that no one said that about a male candidate. No one used that word. So I'm, I'm wondering, as you look around, you know, how much of this problem, and I know it's not an either or conundrum, right? It's it's and both. But how much of this problem is cultural versus technical? I would say that the cultural leads to the technical, right? Political parties in Brazil are uh, male institutions controlled by uh, men. Uh, and, and of course, men don't see the one that, going back to the example of Dilma, uh, the hanging out in the weekends and the parties and the way that men relate to each other, this is something that sets women apart. Uh, uh, when uh, it, it's a different relationship, right? Uh, that it was often described that happened with Dilma. She was not, she didn't have the same type of intimacy and the way uh, and talking about the same subjects as men among each other. Uh, I had this experience working in the financial market in Brazil. There, you go until some point and then you don't follow, right? So I think the cultural uh, issue in Brazil is very absolutely strong. I think it's, it applies to the whole Latin America. The paradox is that the whole Latin America is very sexist, but in terms of politics, Brazil is far behind. So it's a, it's a, it's a par- it's something to be explained. Hmm. Benjamin Gadan. Yeah, I mean, I think these issues are all interrelated and, and largely cultural, John. I mean, Donnie has talked about the private sector barriers to women's success. Um, you mentioned the pandemic earlier. This was a period where women faced, you know, very unequal domestic burdens um, as compared to men. All of these things are barriers in every field and endeavor in life, including, not surprisingly, in politics, with a much less ability to dedicate oneself to that when one is bearing so much of the you know, disproportionate burdens at home. Any other thoughts on this before I move on? I don't want to leave anyone out if they'd like to comment on the, the cultural challenges. Cindy? John, I'd like to point out, too, that in, in focusing on women's leadership roles, whether in government or business, we're really focusing on elite women um, who tend to be women who are not from indigenous or racial minorities. Um, and the the discrimination, the, I would say that the principal discrimination um, uh, that women f- across the board face is in uh, differential wages for the same kind of work. And that is just rampant all over Latin America. I mean, there are cases of women leaders in just about any country that you want. The mayor of the current mayor of Bogota is a woman. The vice president of Colombia uh, is a woman. Um, she was a former defense minister. There are always going to be examples, even if they're minority. But the issues that confront women as a whole, whether it's gender-based and domestic violence um, or just earning less than their male peers for the exact same work, are things that really cut across um, and and cut deeply throughout society. You know, Cindy brings us back to the the original major question that Andrew put on the table about, you know, we could all feel better about symbolic victories, right? And they can be more than just symbolic. They can give us hope. They can give us a path forward. But ultimately, the rubber hits the road when it when we talk about things like 
the wage gap or other other inequities. And so we have very little time remaining, but in the time we have remaining, I'm wondering if I could ask for some thoughts from you on what's some of the best evidence that when we're changing the proportionality of a governing body or whatever it is that we're doing, that it's having actual impact on policy. At one point, for example, was that the, the, the size of the, the, the amount of women in the cabinet of Dilma, for example, this was a major change uh, compared to the past and, and compared to what happened after her, uh, the law of feminist side. But she was she was very, uh, the feminists were very upset because many of the agendas uh, of women were not on the table uh, during the Dilma government. But I think, again, it goes back. It's not the figure of the president only. You, if you are in a sexist society and people are against many of those measures, it's really hard for a president herself alone uh, to respond for that. Uh, and I think that in the case of Brazil, the fact that she was impeached opened a lot of space for criticism and say, you know what, you see this experience was not very happy. Then let's go back to the uh, standards we've been before, which unfortunately uh, we hear that very often. Any other thoughts? And I should warn you that because of the time, we're talking about closing remarks at this point. So your last chance to weigh in. Oh, John, I'll, I'll just um, maybe comment quickly. I mean, on, on the one part, I think that the question of whether women leaders drive different legislation, I, I suppose, as was pointed out, so much of the legislative process is still dominated by men and, and perhaps women being concerned that if they push issues, they're seen as, oh, you're only pushing a woman's issue. So I suspect some of it may be about, you know, sort of more enlightened men recognizing that issues like femicide um, and unequal pay and stuff are not women's issues, they're societal issues. And, you know, I think we'll know that we've actually made progress when we don't have conversations about how many women versus how many men are in the Congress, right? Because it's just it's just whatever number it was this session or that and not because of quotas or, or demands. Christopher Sands. Um, yeah, John, I, I agree with Andrew on that. Uh, but I also think that one of the challenges for us is, is in any political system is building trust. And a lot of the behaviors ascribed to men are how they are traditionally have traditionally built trust. And it's led to very behind closed doors decision making. I think the bigger challenge in our current uh, state of post-pandemic democracy is rebuilding trust between leaders and people and a more inclusive group of decision makers who are uh, earning the trust of the public should include both men and women and not so many, you know, behind closed doors conversations. And I think the public will feel more confident in their leaders if their leaders look more like the public. And that that's one of the things that Canada has aspired to. I'm not saying uh, I have a higher standard for an or inclusive politics. They may be just as screwed up as our current ones, but I think we could do a lot to improve people's confidence in government and the ability of government to solve problems because we'd have a more inclusive group of people making those decisions. Well, I think that's a that's a good place to end. Uh, good thoughts from all of you. Thank you. You know, I think one thing that this highlights is that while we don't want to ignore and not celebrate where progress has been made, that there's a heavy lift remaining, right? There's still lots of work to be done. Um, thank you for your contributions to the conversation today. Look forward to seeing you next time around and learning more from you. Uh, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasanella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Christina Sada Segovia, Anita Kirschenbaum, and Katie Coots. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and that you'll choose to join us again for our next episode. Until then, for America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. 
You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit WilsonCenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.